0: Yannick, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm so excited today to kind of jump in and explore how you've built Public. So thank you so much for the time.
1: Absolutely. Great to be here.
0: So where I want to start, because we have a a ton of ground to cover today, there's a lot of topics that I want to get into. Um, But where I wanted to start is if you could just share kind of a quick sketch of the origin story of Public and Public.com.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we started Public... um, I think in, we launched it in 2019, started a little while before that. And really, the problem that we were solving in the early days was actually quite interesting. It was sort of twofold. I guess what most most pitch decks, they try to have this like one problem, one solution. But I think we were maybe approaching it with a little bit more nuance than that. And And we saw this kind of problem around investing where, on the one hand, a lot of people... We're having, we're seeing these barriers getting into the market, specifically with regards to like how much money is actually required to sort of like dip your toe into those kinds of waters. So, the way that it it used to work is you have, if you want to participate in the stock market, you got to buy a share of a company, and the price per share of that company ultimately ends up representing the minimum amount of investment that you have to make, right? And so, before the recent stock splits, you know, Amazon. Two $3,000, Google around the same, famously Berkshire Hathaway with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that was like one sort of barrier to entry that we saw that we solved by inventing this fractional investing concept where you could buy a fraction of a share. And so a lot of people found that way more intuitive because the stock price is a little bit arbitrary. Actually, you multiply it by the number of outstanding shares and then you get to the market value. But we even saw... A lot of stuff of like people not thinking through those loops and just thinking, oh, if this, like, if you talk to people who are not, you know, familiar with the stock market, right? Naturally, they'd think, oh, whoever has the highest stock price is the most valuable company, right? And, and even those kinds of like, at the time, I'd already been in finance for way over a decade. So I, I knew that that was not the case, but it was sort of like some very first principles thinking and revisiting of very fundamental assumptions about, you know, what's actually common knowledge for the majority of America. And then namely, also people outside of finance. So that was kind of one element. And then the other, you know, way over here, if you will, was just a lot of people having this like psychological barrier that stock market was not for them. And as somebody who had worked in in and around the online trading industry since 2005, I sort of could totally see that, right? Um, Because it's always been historically associated with sort of this like you know white trader pro, if you will right like you've got all these incredible movies by the way like wall street in 87 and the wolf of wall street and you know then the follow up with the Shia biff thing and a bunch of in between those even and very very entertaining and therefore very, reaching a very wide audience but therefore also having people think but that's basically what the stock market is all about and that's who it's for whereas you know the truth is it's called the public markets because it's supposed to be for everybody right and you know we sort of realized okay all those movies are actually about what happened in the 80s and 90s and here we are you know 20 30 years later and the future doesn't need to look like that um in fact we think it should look like something where everyone can participate no matter how much money they might have or whatever their preconceived notions might have been about the stock market. And so you sort of had this like psychological barrier of a lot of people thinking that it's not for them. And then you have the structural barrier, economic barrier of a lot of folks not being able to potentially afford a share in um, their favorite companies and also just not potentially being able to build up a nicely diversified portfolio because if you have to buy one share of, the top 10, 15 uh, companies in the S&P 500 at a time, I think you would have to cop up like ten, twenty thousand dollars 20000 which is sort of way above the, the, the mean average uh, savings count in, in this country, so.
0: Yeah, it seems like what fractional shares really solves for is, you know, most people are thinking, I want to invest $50 or I want to invest $100. They're not thinking, I want to share and what the hell is the price of the share today and what is that? And so it just makes it so that you can actually invest what's comfortable with you, the amount that you want and what you want to invest. It's, you know, somewhat amazing that it took so long for it to be invented, but it feels inevitable, <laughs> anyways.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it functioned for two or 300 years the other way, and then it very quickly changed all of a sudden. I think what's been super interesting to observe is, is I think a lot of the early even media that public got and, you know, a lot of other folks built fractional kind of shortly thereafter as, as, as kind of features. I still think we're actually the only brokers that's born fractional, which is kind of interesting in many different respects. But I think in, in a lot of the early media and awareness around it, it was seen as like, oh, there's a marketization element because it allows for people who couldn't afford to buy a share of Amazon to now buy a share of Amazon. That was obviously true, but what we then also found, especially during 2020 and the events of COVID or whatnot, is that it gave people much greater control over their portfolios. So even if you have $10,000 at a time where Amazon is trading at $3,000, you really have to decide if I want Amazon in my portfolio, does it represent 30, 60, or 90% of my portfolio at the time that I'm making that portfolio, right? Whereas the fractional capability just gave you ability to fine tune that and mix and model your portfolios exactly as you wanted to. And then secondly, it allowed people to dollar cost average in a much more meaningful way, right? And dollar cost averaging, meaning that you're recurringly buy essentially into an asset, essentially to sort of like de-risk for time, I suppose, because you might catch a, a stock at a high or a low. And so if you just buy it you know, every week, every month, then you sort of end up building up an average price that is, um, and that's especially in these very volatile markets that we've been in, frankly, in the last couple of decades. Volatility has been trending upwards. That's become a very popular strategy, and that's really what Fractional allowed for the long tail of investors that are not, um, you know, institutional or um, or necessarily um, high net worth. So, yeah, it was kind of one of these things where, you know, a lot of people thought that it was designed for like this one purpose, this one use case, but it just ended up completely changing, I think, how people invest because it was so much more useful for that. That was just the beginning. And I think today it's just starting to be much more the default of how people thinking about, you know, modeling, controlling, diversifying their portfolios.
0: Totally. It feels like today, if you were going to say, I want to build a public.com or I want to build a competitor or something like that, you would, of course, default to it's always going to be dollar cost. out. It just is a better primitive at the end of the day, a better kind of root way to get access and to make those purchases. Makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I always said was interesting is for all its uh, its sort of like pros and cons, crypto was designed like that, right? Crypto was sort of like designed on the internet. And so you're like, you never had to buy one whole bitcoin to participate in the bitcoin movement if you will right of be uh be an investor in that and that's because it was designed in you know i guess the paper was written in 2008 or something right and so the stock market was not it it goes back a few hundred years and so i think if you had to invent it today yeah you would definitely invent it um with something like this at the core no doubt
0: I want to go back and talk a little bit about the beginning of public.com. And I'm just going to provide a little bit of context. You know, I think I met you late 2018. And so I've been super fortunate to have a chance to kind of see You and Public, you know, evolve over those years. And one of the things at the beginning that really struck me, you know, I learned about what you were what you were building, and it made sense to me. And we're going to get into. I mean, one of the reasons I was so excited about this is Public's been very values focused from day one, and I think this is a fascinating case study of just a company competing on values and and proving that you can actually win and win in a market and win a lot of customers with that. But um, one of the things I wanted to ask about is Robinhood. You know, I remember in 2018, 2019 talking about. About it. And I would talk about, you know, public with, with other people I knew. And literally the default response was, well, this Robinhood, like, how do you beat Robinhood? And Robinhood wasn't as big as it is today, but it was a big competitor. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, how did you think about that? And what gave you the confidence to, that you could enter the market and you could beat what I'm sure to many people felt like this 800 pound gorilla And every market has incumbents, but this was a startup along with a bunch of other incumbents. <laughs>
1: No, absolutely. Um, with a, I'm a designer, and like in those early days, like it's not like I looked at that product it's like, oh, this is ugly, right? Like they watch a bunch of incredible design awards, so so I, I guess I guess it's a good question. And there are number of elements to it. Number one, I actually came over from London back in 2015, I think, uh, 16, something like that. So like um, not too long uh, after. Robin had launched, and I think I came over to the U.S. always having looked from sort of Europe over there across the pond, and like just seeing the greatest financial market in the world, right? Um, the S and P five hundred returning, you know, ten or seven percent adjusted for inflation over the last hundred years. You know, on, I think on a risk adjusted basis. Um, you know that's a pretty great asset and something that you'd struggle to find in europe and so i sort of came over here assuming that of course everyone would be taking advantage of that and what i found was that was far from the case and there like i said that there was a lot of these like misconceptions around it and so there was really these two things right Uh, one piece was the fractional thing which is something that nobody offered at the time, I guess, I think Robin or anybody else. Um, and then the other part was thinking that, like, this is not for me, right? And so that second part is really where we got the idea for, like, community and using community as a way to kind of showcase to people that you can do this sort of uh, no matter what, you know, your background or your gender or your age, if you're above 18 and old, old not to open an account at least. And so... You know, those two things really then came together in a big, big way to create just an experience that was like, I think, uh, orders of magnitude different. Um, and so that was actually the early days. Now, what's interesting is that might not, to your opening point, be as much as what we're known for now. But I when I think back to 2019, 2020, you know, the the, the product set was like heavily differentiated. We were the only one really offering Fractional access to the US market at the time. And obviously, as other people started to kind of add that feature, um, you know, I think the community aspect still uh, made a big difference. You know, 40% of, of the customers are, of the users in public are women, right? That, that alone has been a stat that has been uh, wildly different um, than that of, you know, in other startup investing apps or, and certainly legacy kind of companies. But then I think over time, what we started to think about is really that, like, okay, what this business, more than a lot of other businesses, really comes down to is trust. And that might sound like an obvious statement, but when you think about it, financial services, consumer financial services companies... Uh, they just have to over index on trust so much and the way that trust was built I think in the legacy sort of in the older cohort of legacy brokerages if you will was through you know investing in these personal relationships actually setting up like brick and mortar stores where you could come in and like build and cultivate that that kind of relationship a lot of those relationships are then inherited down through the family right so like if your parents had a stockbroker, you would sort of inherit that and and there would be that kind of relationship. But then, you know, in the age of the internet you realize that like certainly a lot of our generation we're not going to be going to brick and mortar stores and and to cultivate those kinds of relationships and there's actually a question of what relationship do I want with my my brokerage relative and like how is that trust actually built, right? And so we ended up in this model where look, we will build trust in predominantly I think two ways that kind of reinforce each other. One is just being a very values driven kind of player opting like standing for things like transparency, and trying to create the most aligned business model in the industry as far as incentives goes, because we always say incentive dictates outcomes. And so that's sort of something that we believe in a lot. And then secondly, through community, right, so that you could find people on the app, have conversation form communities, there, which really led you to, you know, trust other people in the community, and then sort of like indirectly public as a result of that. And as you can imagine, in that kind of equation, one kind of fed off the other, and they ended up forming more of a of a growth loop than anything else. In that, the more that you're sort of like focusing on values and and you're you're, you're talking to people as as human beings, the more the the, the higher your you know, word of mouth, rate your NPS score, etc., but also the, the the more communities will actually form that are truly valuable on public. And so um, that was kind of like probably not something that you would you know learn in your average MBA, I suppose. But nevertheless, that ended up becoming kind of the formula for us to really crack into the the space. And, and so yeah, it was kind of interesting. I guess it started being more features driven, um, but at the end of the day, a lot of people can copy each other's features and it ended up being something that i think has frankly also more of a moat around it which is sort of like brand recognition values community like these kinds of things are not as easy to to replicate as something that you can sit down write code for six to 12 months and then come out with a with a similar kind of product
0: yeah. It was fascinating to hear you talk about legacy companies, you know, and and really building trust. I think it's excellent analysis, building trust in part by having these physical locations. And I don't know about your experience, but I feel like generationally, I hate going to those physical like, when I have to go to my bank and actually go into the branch, I'm like it's like it's the I've basically exhausted all other options. <laughs> this is the option of last resort. So it's just funny generationally that, you know, now uh that's not needed and in fact, I think it's not desired at all. But um it's also just fascinating thinking about you know that building trust through community because it, it makes a lot of sense you're you're finding people that you trust and respect people that you want to follow they happen to be using public so of course you're gonna trust it as well too.
1: Yeah exactly like when you form when when you form those relationships, I mean, and by the way, trust is not binary. That's the other thing, right? So like trust is considering that trust is a ratio between zero and a hundred, right? And so what might get you through the door as a customer at that point, you might still be at ten percent trust, and you might just have a little bit of money, and you're still texting stuff out. But the more that you find and cultivate, like other relationships, the more feedback you also have that other people have built up that trust as well. Maybe they got to uh, the store, if you will, before you did, but they're still hanging out there, right? And so that reinforces that kind of loop, and that's really what we how we thought about it, and, and fortunately how it ended up um, all playing out. So.
0: Yeah. I, I want to go one level deeper on community because I think it's clearly, a, you know, been a very strategic part of, uh, of public. But you've also, I think there are some really interesting insights. You know, one of the things that you and I were talking about um, as we were kind of preparing for this is just that you guys took the approach from day one. Clearly, you have to KYC people because they're going to be investing. And so that means that, you know, profiles tended to be actual people with names and photos and not what we sometimes find. And there's just, deb- you know, just anonymous photos and kind of made up names. And there has been this debate of, is it good to have these kind of pseudonymous names? You know, is this a net positive? And I think you have some really interesting examples, but I'd love it if you could talk about like how you how you guys cultivated community and some of those things that really enabled it that you feel like are like undeniable kind of principles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, historically when you think about internet communities, you think about these these like um in the early days, like the forum boards, right? And then places like Reddit, that's still like the the primary kind of format. But you also think about obviously like places like Twitter and and many other places but what they all have in common is anonymity. And you know, it is a little bit of like a deep-rooted principle in even the, you know, formation of the internet that like anonymity, like consumer company community when you think about that like like there's a lot of anonymity than enters your brain and I think we we saw that if we wanted to use community to build trust anonymity was actually running counter to that right like that was something that would because like who do you trust the most somebody who is clearly anonymous you have no idea who they are or somebody whose identity has been fully verified and i think the vast majority of people would would say the latter right and and i think um, it's been interesting to see like now with the let's acquisition of twitter some of those kind of ideas floating around because what we ended up doing then saying okay we're running a stock broker so we have to verify people's identities in order for them to have an investing account but we linked that to the community in a way where if you wanted to participate in the community post anything react stuff etc you needed to actually have an approved brokerage account which meant that we had verified your identity and i think that allowed us to grow the community still at a at a very sort of fast rate but without All the sort of like, um, all the sort of spam trash and all that stuff for the first place. So that was one objective that it kind of solved. So we're seeing a lot less than that than many other communities would that it sort of had, had, have reached some scale. But secondly, the quality of the conversations were just like much higher, right? And it was really a place where, you know, you know, people debating rational ideas, but there's also a lot of emotion at display, but in a very humane way. And there's a lot of support for each other in the community. Like, that's probably the word that jumps into my mind the most when I think about the public community is how they've just, at every turn, supported each other, right? Through the COVID drop of March 2020, and then supporting each other through, like, um, you know, generally a pretty great ride through 20. 20 and then for the mean stock movement and then even through you know 2022 which was a very different year one of the reasons that i think as a business we've continued to do pretty well certainly relative to a lot of our peers is like the community have reinforced and like and so like whereas maybe you would open many other apps and be like i don't want to open that because honestly like i don't like red numbers i don't want to see how much i'm down people continue to open public and engage in the community because they know that they can find support there as well and that's been incredibly you know and it's actually like obviously these markets have been challenging for a lot of our customers but for us as a business it's been nice to see that like that didn't just create like turn public into like a, a great place and we felt like we were sort of doing the right thing with that but now that there's good business impact there too because you've created something that People actually want to use not just in a in a roaring bull market, but something that they also find uh, value, and sometimes, frankly, more value in in a market that's sort of heading in the other direction.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's just fascinating because obviously you hear community thrown around a lot these days, and I think generally it feels meaningless or it's hard to grasp exactly what that means. And you know, I've spent time in crypto. I don't consider joining a Discord a community because I have no idea who's in there. It's like grifters along with people who are supporting the project, and so it's it's just kind of been fascinating. I think to look at Public as a um, just a great example of a business that like prioritized it, and it's and it's been a core part of of how you've been able to be so successful. I want to talk a little about financial literacy because I know you know even just going back to like one of the first pitch decks for Public, financial literacy was this this really big focus. Just like yes, there is this cost barrier, but more than that, what's really the barrier is people don't feel like they get it or they don't understand it. And I remember, you know, just thinking back, one of the things I thought was really impressive that I really liked in the earliest versions of public was you guys leaned heavily into discovery and it wasn't like overly clever discovery, but you were just grouping things and helping people be able to say, oh, you're interested in this Okay, go into this category. I'd love to talk a little bit about like, how do you feel like you guys have tangibly solved some of the financial literacy piece? I imagine community is a piece, maybe discovery as a, as a product feature is what else is there?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly if, if support is the first thing that comes into my mind, we're thinking about the public community, financial literacy is the second one. And so let's break it down because there's a couple of different facets to it. So number one, uh, we've seen this whole movement of people helping educate each other, right? And I've seen through my history in this industry that if you try to be, as a platform, the, the main catalyst driving education, uh, you might be doing it for all the right reasons, but it can be very costly. And at the end of the day, as one company, you you represent one viewpoint. And what's incredibly important in the stock market, especially in investing more than anything, is to have diversity of thought. Right? And so that's something that any one entity, just by being one entity, will actually struggle to, to deliver on. And so that more than anything led us down this path of like having a more community user generated content approach to education. Um, and that's been incredibly important. Um, the other thing is, you know, I talked earlier about how a lot of folks, there was this psychological barrier of entering the market. The solution to that, I think as said in, in that pitch take, was financial literacy, right? Because the reason that, you know, part of it was like feeling that it's not for you. But then with public, we were able to create a place where you could open the app and you could see people that look like you, which makes you think. And then if, again, if you think about that trust parameter going from zero to 100, like that will give you the first 10, 20 percentage points up and be like, okay, other people that actually like look like me maybe like have a similar background or actually kind of doing this. And then the financial literacy piece is, is the other thing to like really help you grow your financial prowess as you grow your um, portfolio and that's also where the interplay frankly with the fractional stuff um, worked out incredibly well because it wasn't this notion of you having to save out 10 20 fifty thousand dollars and then get to work you could actually like learn in a community with others learning from your own experiences as well as from other people experiences which is sort of like learning by doing on steroids because you're Dramatically pulling forward and accelerating your um, your learning curve in that moment when you're doing it together as a group, and but then being able to build up your portfolio, you know, step by step at a time, and and not having to like deposit these huge chunks of money and spend three thousand dollars every time you wanted to buy a share of Amazon, etc. Because you felt like that you'd done the work and the analysis and you were not ready to do that, and so that's a little bit where I previously talked about these two problems. Maybe in a more disjointed fashion, the financial literacy aspect, how you learn it and how you execute on it, that really came together through the holistic sense of the model that those two components kind of represents and 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 so I guess in in short, you know, the ability to to build your financial literacy, be a better investor, right? Which you know maybe initially was mostly true for people that were new to the stock market today those people have become incredibly sophisticated actually and that's very rewarding to see when you kind of follow around the community see how people have really grown but at the end of the day learning is something that you know you can't get enough of, right everybody can still learn you know warren buffett's still reading many books at 93 or whatever he is right and he as the best investor in the world ever he'd be the first to admit that there's still a lot that he can learn so um if it's the case for him, it's the case for everybody. And that's, that's kind of when we, we realized how powerful is this, right? the like, ability to like just continue to learn, which is more efficiently done in a group setting and then execute those learnings all sort of in one experience. That was sort of the, the sum is greater than the parts um, aspect of our model.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a super interesting thought experiment to just say, okay, if you're focused on financial literacy, helping people learn, if you took, if you have public, but you take out all the social features, I think everyone would agree it's not as, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of learning there that's maybe super deep and super rich. And so it really is this community. But to your point, I think it all kind of feeds into one another because I think for everybody, what is gaining financial literacy? It's one, gaining confidence, but also trying and realizing what works for you, you know, having painful experiences, having good experiences. And so it is just that flywheel and, and, you know, having a product that can go through that. A 100%. I want to talk for a second about product market fit. And, you know, the, I guess the question that I wanted to ask is, did you guys have a framework or metrics in place for product market fit? And I'm, I'm guessing this is maybe going back to 2019, 2020. Um, and how did you think about that? How do you think about product market fit generally?
1: That's something that, you know, me and, and life, Mike, because I have, have geeked out on a lot, right? And like, really, again, when thinking about like, which frameworks you'd like that's a really tough one right there's a number of things floating around out there the superhuman folks have some blog posts about some stuff etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think you know while that's doing pretty good we didn't end up going down that route at all um yeah I'll, I'll take you a little bit chronologically through the journey as it were so i think we definitely initially looked at just like retention of new people that signed up and then how engaged they were you know Time spent on the app, things like frequency, right? So basically how many days of the week are people kind of checking in and 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 what's the what's the rate of that engagement? And that those are solid quantitative metrics, but the problem, especially with the retention one, is that it's more of a lacking indicator, and so it creates a long feedback loop. And so for that reason, we then also started to look a little bit more on the qualitative side and i think one constraint that a lot of companies have when doing the qualitative analysis of product market fit is that you end up with user interviews or user service they're very time consuming and so while they're not a lacking indicator in the same way that retention is It'll take you a few months to like do all that work and get everything together. And then you may as well look at the three-month <laughs> retention curve at the end of it, right? And and that's actually not a bad framework. It just means that it takes like 90 days to like really figure it out. And that's a little bit where we had an advantage by way of operating an open community because people were putting their emotion on display every day. And so there's a lot of sentiment analysis that we could actually do We could see, you know, are people talking about stuff? Yes. What are they talking about? Why are they talking about it? And then it allows you to sort of like just like observe behavior. I mean, I I guess it's a little bit like the digital version of one of these kind of creepy movies where they're standing behind the mirror and uh, looking at a bunch of subjects in the room. I'm not portraying it in the, the, that's actually a creepy thought, but like looking at it. <laughs> that, that is how it works though. <laughs> but is it? But that is how it works. Like yeah. that's how focus groups were ran in, in the 80s and 90s, right? And and even, I guess, some companies still do that kind of stuff today. But that gave us a little bit of advantage in like trying to like, just like pull forward the qualitative measures of product market fit. And, and sure enough, we very quickly got to a point where we looked at a cohort that would come in of new signups and we were able to like, observe behavior pretty quickly and you know also see like how long does it take them to go to the first few posts before they sort of activate they make their first investments, etc etc like looking at all these things seeing that funnel kind of compress and then we're actually able to you know have a better and better idea of predicting what that three month retention rate uh, would be which ended up being uh, incredibly incredibly high quite fortunately for us and and so But we had the benefit of being able to like call that a little bit, um, a little bit earlier than um, relative to if we hadn't had the community alive.
0: Hey, I want to go one level deeper and ask about, like, philosophically, how you think about product market fit. And, and the reason I want to ask the question is clearly, you know, if you just just it feels like embedded in the words product market fit is this sense that you go from not having it to having it, and it's like a line in the sand that you cross one day and then you're good to go. And then that stands in contrast with you know what a bunch of other very smart people have to say. I know product um, Scott Belsky, one of his, you know, one of the things he said on the podcast was that it's a liquid, it's not a solid, it's always changing, and it makes me think back to your trust score of your zero to 100 and people are always there how from a framework perspective do you do you think about it and do you encourage other founders to think about product market fit
1: so I think the reality is now I was like talking about the early days and maybe like the first time that we found it the truth is we've had to found it multiple times and that's the that's the situation for any company and I it'll manifest itself in a, in a few different ways sometimes things change in your market and you have to like you know rediscover kind of product market fit because you know they're not constant to scott's point right so it's like you might analyze the market first build the product to serve the market but then the market moves and then you gotta you know uh use the big taboo word of pivot the product a little bit right and that's sometimes the market moves sometimes the market just expands and then you're realizing oh now i gotta serve it and so i gotta find it. so regardless of which scenario in you'll have to find product market fit multiple times and actually in most cases you've got to find what i call product market channel fit because you've got to consider how those customers come through the door in the first place and behavior can be very channel specific depending on where you're finding your customers and so we would in the early days go out and partner with a lot of communities right so we partnered with uh, with Girlboss, Sophia Moroso's community at the time, for instance. And that brought a lot of really smart women into the app that would certainly see things very differently than um, you know, other channels that might be predominantly male, for instance, right? And so it's like you gotta think about all that. And that might be like two things where, you know, talking about Scott, the first mile there is really important and and one of the things that we've gotten increasingly more sophisticated around and increasingly better at is not having the first same first mile for everybody. Um, and so the, the earlier, uh, you know, one of the, as a product manager, like one of the uh, kind of shitty things about running financial services companies, like the funnel is so long and there's just no way around it. Like I would meet investors who had not invested in FinTech before. they like, they'd be like, dude, your funnel is like terrible. Like the onboarding is like 20 questions. And I was like, "That I kind of have to ask those. There's no other way around it. But if you take the glass half full approach instead of the sort of more pessimistic view on that, uh, what that means is that you're able to actually get a lot of data and and like learn a lot about your customers very, very quickly. And normally it would take maybe like 10 app sessions, you know, over four days over the next two weeks or something like that to to sort of get a, a good picture of why are your customer here? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to learn? How are they trying to accomplish the objectives that they're sort of having coming through the door? And so you can get you can get a better idea uh, of that a lot more quickly uh, by uh, even these like know your customer kind of questions that we have to ask and uh, and so forth. And so I think when it comes down to it, you know, you gotta find product market fit multiple times. I think we found it with fractional sort of technology that we build. You know, we found it with community, but also later we found it with more values based things like the decision to you know abandon the payment for order flow mechanism right um which is sort of like a change to the product that we made um as the market also was very kind of rapidly evolving right and so that's another great example of it yesterday we announced that we're going to be launching treasuries which is another sort of way for us to bring profit because again the market has changed right so The market specifically, like quite literally macro, the market has completely changed, right? Rates go up, tech stocks and uh, growth stocks for the most part have come down. The overall market is also down, but it also creates this amazing opportunity that anyone who who didn't invest 15 years ago might not be familiar with, which is in the fixed income space. And so now we're sort of redeploying that entire playbook of like, okay, here's, Here's actually this generation of millions and millions of investors. The vast majority really have never been interested in fixed income. Frankly, why would they when the rate's been zero? It's been an irrelevant asset class. They've It's, it's gone for like the last decade, if you will, right? But now it's come back in a huge wave. And, you know, we announced it yesterday, uh, starting with the six-month maturity, we're offering 4.8% yield. And that's almost like people's people's like, hey, it's a little bit too good to be true. It's like, no, that's the U.S. Treasury people. <laughs> like, what can I tell you, right? And so we're realizing right now that we need to, like, you know, redo our thing with, like, okay, there's a lot of education needs to happen here. The community is, like, getting their hands into it and, like, asking all the right questions. So it's a super exciting time right now. I'm looking forward to to seeing how that plays out. But I think we'll end up again finding, you know, product market fit um, one more time with that as a class. Same goes for the alternatives business that we sort of launched last year. And so it's just this this like journey of finding it multiple times. Um, you don't have to be right hundred percent of the time, but you gotta be more right than wrong for the most part. And so that's why it's really helpful to just like develop this this kind of process for it and this like framework of thinking for it. And then as it happens, your intuition knows in and it gets better and better every time. And so um, I don't know that I'll say that it becomes easier because a lot of other things change too. But as you go through those cycles, You've started to grow as a as a decision maker, or as a designer, or product manager, or whatever,
0: whatever your role might be. You develop that capability. It's like a muscle, you know, and so yeah. it's not going to be easier, it's a but exactly. you at least have yeah. it and you've, you know, worked it. I was just going to say really quickly, you know, I was really excited to see the Treasury Yield product in part because the UI is fantastic and I no longer will have to use TreasuryDirect.com, which is just the world's most atrocious. <laughs> Looks like it's literally built by the Treasury Department, maybe was. Um, anyways, so it's cool to also see that get packaged.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of like weird. Like I, I, I you know, I, I never like to uh, to say bad things about our competitors, but certainly not when it's the US government. <laughs> like it's a little bit strange to actually be technically competing a little bit with, with with those folks. But honestly, like I think, you know, I don't want to speak in on their behalf in any way, shape or form, but the first signals that we've seen is like there's a lot that we can like, obviously the ability to actually, you know, invest in these T-bills but what we could really also bring to the table is just putting them at the forefront, having people get educated around them, right? it's it's sort of this chapter of financial literacy that, like I said, has been you know irrelevant for the past um, decade and now it's come back in a huge way and and a lot of people are really engaging that. so
0: yeah. Okay, I have a few more questions I have to ask. The the next one I want to go to just really quickly is kind of, you know, similar to the dive we did on Product Market Fit, I want to talk about growth because I imagine there are a lot of parallels. You know, growth is a liquid, not a solid. I'm guessing your strategies clearly were different at different periods in time, even talking about early on partnering with communities and, you know, having an angle be pulling people into your community. But then you're also trying to sell people on a product sometimes, maybe the community's secondary. Just talk a little bit um, in whatever you think is most interesting, whether it's philosophically or technically tactical examples about how you've thought about growth and what you've learned growing so quickly, I think, with public. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So um, it's been interesting. So the, the way, by the way, that we've always divided sort of the work between me and, and life, my co-host is I'm responsible for product engineering and, and he's responsible for growth. And where we come together to form one person as much as we can is in the product growth work and, and like in the product market growth channel fit exercise right so um yeah early on we i mean we've first of all our philosophy here has always been from day one build a really diverse set of of channels right um specifically you never want to be addicted to an algorithm that you know the facebook's of the world might wake up and just change one day and then just like see all the numbers going down and to the right suddenly and so there's a lot of work for us that went into finding other channels and it's i think much harder than just going to the facebook ad manager and upload some nice ads and start clicking those buttons but i really think it pays dividends um over time um because everybody ha- saw what happened with idfa and you know that was something that we actually thought a lot about even before it happened in the early days of like hey um you've had this era uh, programmatic advertising, I think, with the rise of Facebook and whatnot, right, and all these like ad marketplaces, it's all been data, 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 data. And so, when you upload those, when you upload those ads, if you're just optimizing for click-through rate, you'll upload, you know, you'll end up uploading things that just like blinks here and there, and like looks like a casino, right? And I think, and the brand manager will be like, "Oh God, what's happening here, right?" But if you're really just like purely optimizing for business. That's what you end up doing now, or that's what you did in the era of programmatic advertising. And I think what you're seeing now in the sort of post IDFA of world is it's going back to your brand and your values become much more central and really paramount to your marketing mix in a very different way, right? So I think we've lived in this programmatic advertising world where like, Brand and acquisition were like fighting over like how much the advertisement should blink versus how nice it should look. Now, I think you're moving into a world where it's coming together in a much different way. And here's why. When you, you know, obviously post ID of everybody is like, tax broke, click-through rates are much shittier now, et cetera, et cetera. So you're kind of find customers different ways. At the same time, what's happening on those same networks is sort of the rise of the influencer, right? And a lot of that engagement is now centralized. On sort of a few channels, if you will, and so your ability to partner with those creators is very rooted in your brand, right? Because that's a totally different exchange than the one you're making with the Facebook Ad Manager. The Facebook Ad Manager is, exchanges: here's some money, here's a blingy ad, and you'll send me you'll send me users. I'll get impressions. They'll click, and you know, this is one where any creator is like, okay, if I have to put my brand behind your brand it's an exchange of sort of social currency more than anything which is 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 a totally it's a totally different sort of thing right and so that's really where I think with public we've we've benefited a fair amount from from always being a very transparent you know we're trying to build the most trusted um, investing platform. For our generation um, and beyond, and as part of that, we've really owned in on like being very value driven, being very transparent, and a benefit of that has been that a lot of these creators have really been able to get behind us in a big way, and I think that's been that's been huge for us. And obviously, like the community angle there means that there's a nice integration to that, etc. Because you know, if you're somebody who might want to put up a YouTube video every week to like tell people about you know, markets or analysis of this, that, or the other, you know, you could be things like, if, if you're going to miss me between now and next week, you know, you can follow me in public and you'll see a little bit more daily what I'm up to. You know, people put the, on display what they have in their portfolios, etc. And so it's just been a way that we can like first attract these communities by actually investing in brand and, and not just acquisition, which is kind of interesting relative to the old era of programmatic advertising. That's a little bit of a 180 in a way. And then the ability to activate folks and like open the funnel up as widely as possible. And again, there it obviously helps to be a sort of community social platform myself, frankly, that can then more directly map onto kind of other communities and other other social platforms.
0: Yeah, it was a fantastic breakdown. I mean, you made so many points, there. I'm not even going to try to add anything to that. That's that's fantastic. I want to ask, I want to take a hard left turn and ask one more super tactical question. And then I want to shift and talk about products. I think there's a bunch of stuff to explore there. And what I want to ask, you know, tactically is when you and I were talking about what we might cover One of the things that came up was how you guys have embraced the DRI model. And this, you know, this ties into a little bit into how you think about brand, which I think is another really interesting thought. And it really gets to this, I I think, you know, this philosophical idea that accountability versus responsibility and how you think about those things. So I know it has teed up a bunch of stuff there. Um, Talk a little bit about why you guys embrace DRIs, how you approach that and how that trickles through into things like brand and brand ownership, quote unquote
1: yeah absolutely. So uh, the DRI concept, I think was actually invented by uh, Apple. It stands for directly responsible individual. And I guess it 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 to eliminate any question marks around you know who does what in an organization. Now, we've sort of taken that concept, and I think we've taken it a step or two further and and i'll I'll, I'll let me go off of the brand example to like illustrate how we've actually used that to to build brands. So, So, as I mentioned before, brand's been incredibly important to us. And, you know, Zach, who's our DRI and who's our head of brand, he's the DRI for brand, obviously. But on the other hand, you know, we have the saying that your brand is everything you do. Like your brand is made up by everything that you do. And so every interaction that you have with customer service every every little pixel, frankly, in the in the platform will add a contract because at the end of the day, if you define it as like, you know, the perception that people have or you're in there, like like everything matters, right? And so you can't so so like when it's such a broad thing, right? And a lot of these things, brand and growth and so forth, they are these like huge things. And so you can't just have one person do all that but that is not what the DRI means right and so we differentiate between the responsibility of the DRI and then accountability and i think it is actually important to have accountability be something that everything like everyone can have some ownership in which might be a little bit of an unconventional kind of thought because i think most mba thinking is like hey we need one person accountable for everything and if and if 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 it doesn't work it's a complete binary and then that person gets kind of promoted or fired, right? But I think the reality is there's so much more nuances. And if you're willing to embrace those nuances, I think there's a lot of power in having everyone feel a level of accountability in building your brand because it means that how people even talk about your company to potential people that you want to hire or to their friends or they go to bar, like whatever. But like everybody, there's a shared sense of accountability, which is really, really important. But you then gotta differentiate that from the dri where the responsibility to drive is right and um sort of uh, coincidentally it's also the three first letters in uh in, in the word drive which is like really what that ends up meaning in a way i've thought of endless um, acronyms by the way to try and make like dri de but it ends up being too messy that's the reason apple stopped at three characters so i'm just gonna leave that there But yeah, that's, that's something that we talk a lot about internally. And I think it's, it's incredibly important sort of in our operating model to have these kind of theorized. So like there's a, there's clarity about who have to drive this process. But frankly, for most of like the company wide objectives, everybody's got to feel some accountability in that. And everybody's got to be able to see how their work directly rolls up into that. And so that's why you can't just have it only be on like the middle management layer or whatever. Like it needs to be truly a, a shared group effort because. You know, really the the definition of a company is a bunch of people kind of coming together and, and, and everybody, yeah, like I said, they, they really need to be able to feel and, and also to an extent sort of measure what the value of their contribution is.
0: Yeah. And maybe a litmus test that I would throw out, which might seem really silly, but I think, you know, public performs incredibly well on this is, you know, something I like to do is just like find the least sexy surface area that a company has, which I tend to think of as like the help center (laughs) and go and read an article. And is that something where you're like, Oh, I don't even, you know, it's just terribly done. There's such a low bar for it. It's not helpful. It doesn't integrate with anything else. Doesn't, you know, use it calls features by different names. Your guys are incredible and they're, they're simple. They're not anything, you not like over the top. But I, I think it's that sort of uniformity of ownership and the sense that no, we all have a chance, we all have a role to play is really important.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And and uh, there's a lot of truth to the statement that your brand is made up by do because every touch point matters, right? And I think you know we're talking about brand as one example here, but but growth is another one, right? Um, where you know, yes, there's a DRI for sort of growth and acquisition, but There are so many things that go into that. Like I said, the funnel is incredibly long, et cetera. And so, like the person who's responsible for onboarding as a PM also needs to feel some accountability for growth. Otherwise, even if he's not the DRI for growth, right? Because otherwise, you know, if you fill the top of funnel, but onboarding isn't doing its job, then nothing kind of matters at the end. And, And so, that's been sort of important for us.
0: I want to close, you know, we only have a few minutes left. I want to close by talking about um, your product. And and because I think it's something that public is really good at. And I'll just kind of, I guess, share some thoughts. And then I'd love to kind of open it up to you to kind of talk about how you think about it and how you approach it. But even just preparing for this, you know, there's not only so in the product, you guys started with with obviously stocks, you've expanded into alternative assets and crypto, you got ETFs, you also now have treasuries inside the products, even within the product, there's this kind of rich world. Uh, in this rich focus of just making the experience, I think, incredible. But totally aside from that, then, you know, you guys have some incredible features like Public Live. Like if you weren't values-driven, if you weren't focused on helping people feel that they have financial literacy, that they have control, they know what they're doing, you wouldn't do something like Public Live. It's incredibly well done. And you have stuff like Public Town Hall, pulse is really interesting as a way, you know, as an example, I've had Robert Cantwell, who's the fund manager of um, Holdings. he he runs an ETF called compound kings, I'm a big fan of, I know he's used it and has raved about it as just a way for him to connect with with shareholders. So these are all like, what I love about it is it's opinionated, it's well executed, and it ties to what you're doing. So it's not going to be a particularly graceful tight question. But I guess what I want to ask is, what drives, you know, I guess what is different about public that you not only invest in these things, you do it really thoughtfully, but you execute on them really, really, really well?
1: So I think we we over-index a lot on what we call invest with context, right? So if you break down the public value proposition, it maps a little bit to what you're saying. But the way I would say it is sort of like invest in everything. That's the vision. That's the future that we see. You know, we're expanding the definition of what can be an asset class, we literally even have things like alternative investments on the app, you know, which everything from like cars and art and this, that, the other, now treasuries, et cetera. So like all doing that, but then the the sort of level right below that is invest with context, right? And so when you can invest in everything, doesn't actually mean that you that you should. It's it's up to every individual to decide based on their own risk factors, et cetera, how they should construct their portfolios. And so there's a huge responsibility that actually comes with that when you're opening up such a vast investing universe to people to to just do the very best you can do to give people context. And, you know, um, we have this saying that, like, we always want to put investors first, right? We want to help people be better investors, be the best investors that they can be. And and that's a little bit where all these kind of formats um, have come in. And, you know, to the point on quality, I think it's mostly because, um, you know, we obviously have an incredible team that I think sets a very high bar for this stuff. But it's also just like very important to us, right? It is a very important part of the experience. Um, We want public to be not just a place where you go to trade, but a place where you experience the markets. And I think that's been sort of part of that vision from day one, right? It might have started with community. And now we've leaned a little bit into... The public live stuff, which, you know, for the audience's benefit, is sort of a social audio show that runs now multiple times a day with many times, you know, the open starts 9.15 every day, um, a quarter to before the market open. There's breaking news kind of coverage, et cetera. And like this, like social audio kind of format. And it's really it's really helpful for people. The town hall stuff is something where we bring leadership of public companies directly onto the app to actually take questions from retail shareholders who... You know, are not really invited to the earnings
0: call. Oh, um, oh, yeah. So if anyone we, has ever tried to join an earnings call, <laughs> like someone should just go and try that experience if you haven't. What you guys have built is so much better. <laughs> yeah,
1: thanks. So I think it, you know, it, it might, the investment context uh, might have started with community, right? You can see the Venn diagram here between financial literacy, investment context, like all these things, right? They're all a little bit different sides of the same kind of coin, like, you know, investor education. And so, you know, it started there where we expanded with that concept of like, oh, is there a richer kind of format that you can dial into every day and now you can replay them. So we have a whole library, which is like like a podcast in the app at this point. And then you've got, yeah, things like, you know, Town Hall, which is where you can hear it directly from the host's mm-hmm. mouth, so to say, the leadership of these public companies. Right. And that's a little bit us seeing ourselves as like, hey, we don't just want to be a broker of securities we'd like to be a broker of relationships as well, right? Like, and a lot of um, leadership and public companies really want to build and cultivate relationship with their retail investors as well. If nothing else, then just for the fact that there's a lot of data that actually shows us the highest form of loyalty that you can have to a company, right? Like people that own stock in ride-sharing app uh, A will not use ride-sharing app B, right? And we see that all the time. And so there's sort of like a rational argument for why you would want to go and kind of Cultivate that that like investor base, and yeah, that's just generally how we've kind of thought about these things, right? Like, can we be not just a place to trade, not just you know a broker of securities, but a place to experience the markets, and also a broker of relationships to these public companies, to other people, um, and so forth, and and that that generally sort of helps inform our product roadmap.
0: Yeah, I think what I just appreciate so much about it is it ties into what you're doing, and you can feel. You, you guys are doing impactful things. What I mean by that is, you know, I think before fractional share ownership or before, you know, Pulse or town halls or Public Live, if you were a retail investor, I mean, as I alluded to, I've I've tried, you know, I've been on earning calls before. It's a t- atrocious, atrocious, atrocious experience. And so it feels like public is an advocate for all retail investors and is really trying to create the best world for them and obviously tie that in with everything else. And it just feels very different than people that are focused just on trading, helping you trade, helping you invest. Um, you know, and I love that tiee so closely into your values. any closing message for people listening, any kind of final thought to share? We've talked about a lot. We
1: have talked about a lot. Uh, it's been great. It's funny because i I enjoy the tactical stuff as much as I enjoy I like the greater philosophical things, right? And like I think I think really the ability to like go from one to the other, like that's what I personally define as like doing the work and like really like um but at the same time being able to like have deep and kind of big thoughts like that that spectrum is really what um personally i just find a lot of joy in too so it's always fun to like look back and reflect and um yeah especially with someone like yourself who was really kind of part of the journey and then can also you know like know the hypotheses that we had at the time and seeing having seen some of those uh twists and turns and like the to observe everything um so yeah
0: I mean, it's such a—it's been such a treat to be able to kind of follow along and and uh, see a bunch of ideas that I was really rooting for in the beginning play out. Um, has just been so cool. So, thank you so much for the time, Yannick. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. Dan. Thanks.